As you know, we have been basically doing a 2010 rendition of the greatest single doctrine or teaching in the Bible as far as you and I are concerned as Christians. I do not know of a more needed teaching today than the teaching to God's people on the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. We have been coming through Romans chapter 14, and now you've seen how that that chapter has opened itself up to the great teaching where it talks about the fact that uh, for it is written, uh, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess, so that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And it says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In my ministry, I try to preach that some way, shape, or form at least once a year. I think in everything that I do, if you're a regular on Thursday night or uh, whatever we do, I try to infuse that teaching into whatever we're doing. I I don't know of another greater teaching that needs to be before us today uh, as the concept of the judgment seat of Christ. Yet, as I've already told you, it's probably the most foreign doctrine uh, anywhere uh, in Christianity today. Nobody preaches on it anymore. And uh, the idea of preaching today in most churches is to not rock the boat. Don't cause people any problems. Don't, don't get sideways with them. Don't teach anything controversial. Don't make them mad. Don't hold them accountable or responsible. Just kind of get along. And that, of course, is the hallmark of the Laodicean church. And uh, I talked to you a moment ago before we prayed for the offering that there's a meaning behind why we call our church Old Paths Baptist Church. But in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, Israel was in a similar situation as Christianity is today, where they had departed from almost everything that God had been doing. And they're in deep apostasy, much like the church of Jesus Christ today in the Laodicean church period. We know now the word Laodicea means rights of the people. It's the last period of church history before Jesus Christ comes back. And back in Israel, in Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah's job was much like my job. God sent him to his people, God's people, to preach God's message. But the problem was the people of God didn't want to hear God's message. They're much like Christianity today where they're just lethargic. They're trying to have a good time. They don't really want to be committed or involved in anything. And uh, they're a long way from God and the Word of God. In fact, if you would look at Israel under the greatest period of time of David and Solomon, compared to the time when Jeremiah writes, uh, some three, four hundred years later, uh, you will find that they're almost indistinguishable. You can't even tell them, tell them one from the other. They're so bad. And Jeremiah's message there in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, was <clears throat> for them to get back on the old path, the path that was right, the path that God had had given them early on. And just like the nation of Israel, God gave them a path that they were to stay on. When you come into the New Testament and you study church history, like what we're doing on Tuesday night, you'll find that God had a path for the church. And that path was the church that for the church was one that was uh, was built around the Word of God, the great teachings of the Bible. And just like the nation of Israel has departed off the path, so has, so has Christianity today. So we started our church. We decided to call it Old Paths Baptist Church. And um, I can always tell when I meet somebody and they ask me what's the name of our church and I tell them if they know very much about the Bible or not because most of them just look at you like you're weird. Why would you call it Old Paths? Oh, because it's in the Bible? <laughs> uh, that's why. And, of course, that's where we're at today. 
Last week, we looked at the first of two definitive passages on the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, We know that day is also called in the Bible as the day of Christ or the day of Jesus Christ. And we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We picked it up in verse 9, and we uh, come all the way down to verse 23. We looked at a number of things uh, that we really needed to understand, to comprehend, and really understand this day. And we found out a number of things. We found out now that it's not what we do uh, that God looks at, but why we do what we do. We found out now that the judgment seat of Christ, you can, you can win a thousand people to Christ today. You could build a hundred thousand churches a week. You could burn your life out and do everything from the world's standpoint for God, but at the end of the day, if the motivation, the attitude of heart of why you did what you did wasn't based on the right thing. You see, we look at, we look at quantity, and that's the way the world gears us up today. We look, at, we look at quantity, but God never looks at quantity. God always looks at the quality of it, and God sees, as he says down through here, when he sorts it out of what sort it is. Very frankly, if the motivation is not based on our understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross, then it's not a pure motive, and it's simply of no value. And I want to be honest with you. That's a very hard concept for most Christians today. Most Christians, when you, and this is going to not be the easiest message that you ever heard in the world today, because it's going to be foreign to many of you. But I don't mean this in a bad way, but that just goes to show how little you know about the Bible. That's your fault, not mine. But when you start to look at this concept, uh, most people, uh, it's foreign to them to understand that you can do so much for God, and yet you lose everything at the judgment seat of Christ. Because we live in a Christianity today that's built, as I said, on quantity and not on quality. We don't understand today what it takes. We don't understand today what it takes to get an inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. You've got a preacher out here that builds a mega church, and uh, he travels around the world, and and uh, he does all builds a building that's you know five, six, seven thousand people come to his church. And then, uh, you know, you have a little lady over here that's in a rest home someplace and and she can't get out and she can't do anything, but she's been saved all of her life. And uh, we get to the judgment seat of Christ and we look at both of them and we automatically think that the guy built the great church and did all the things around the world would walk away with it all where the poor lady down here in the rest home, at the end of her life, she just got to get along as best she can and maybe not have anything. But you know, for a truth, There'll be many, many cases in Christianity, the government of Christ, where the guy who built the big church and did everything that he did gets absolutely nothing, and the little lady down there in the rest home walks away with dump trucks full. You know why? It's attitude. It's attitude. It's attitude. It's not about what you do. It's about why you do what you do. We're all shallow in the Bible. We really are. The church age that we live in right now cares nothing about the Bible. And that's unfortunate because what happens is as the real depth and the real meaning of so many things that I preach to you about are based on a deeper study in the Word of God. And most people, because they're so out of touch with the reality of the Bible, they don't really study the Bible. They don't really learn the process to study the Bible. They, they just never get there. Let me, let me talk to you for a minute about the judgment seat of Christ. Back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, you got a great example. And it's in Exodus chapter 27. 
And when you come back there in Exodus chapter 27, you're going to find where it talks about, in that part of Exodus, the brazen altar. Now, the brazen altar is where they made the sacrifice. And that sacrifice, that fire, if you're going to study your Bible, it's, it's a picture of Christ dying on the cross. And this is very important, and you want to, and I, I know, you know, most of God's people never hear this anymore because pastors don't teach the Bible. And yet, when you get at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be able to use the excuse where, well, I went to church, they didn't really teach me the Bible. You're not going to be held accountable for what you knew or what you didn't know, but you're going to be held accountable for what you could have found out, but you chose not to. That's going to be the problem. Now you take that thing back there in Exodus chapter 27. You know what you got? You got that brazen altar outside that tabernacle. When they brought that sacrifice in, the high priest put that, <coughs> put that sacrifice on that brazen altar and they burn it. Now that brazen altar is a picture of Christ dying on the cross for you. We don't have time to go into all of the tabernacle, but this is what we're dealing with here. That sacrificial lamb on that brazen altar, brass in your, brazen, brass, brass in your Bible is a picture of God's judgment. So when they burnt this sacrifice on the brazen altar, the brass altar, it was a picture of Christ dying on the cross for you. Now here's the thing that you got to get, and nobody even knows this today. Everything else that they did, when they walked into that tabernacle, when the priest went in to do his work, no electric lights, no light switch. You had six candlesticks over here. What's that smell? There's an altar of incense up here in the corner. And everything in there was completely dark and everything had to be lit. Everything had to be lit. <coughs> everything had to be lit for, it to op- for the priest to operate. He had to light the seven candles so he'd have some light. He had to light the incense and get that because that's a picture of your prayer life. The seven candlesticks are a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. On the other side of the room, there was, there was what they called the shoe bread. It was baked fresh every day. It's a picture of the Bible. And it was laid out one, two, three, four, five, six, and then another row, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelve loaves baked fresh every day. Twelve, because in the Old Testament, it's a picture of the nation of Israel and the twelve tribes. But it's laid out six and six. Well, why? Because that showbread's a picture of the Bible, and you've got 66 books in your Bible. Now imagine, you walk into that tabernacle and everything is dark. All you have over here is the light off the candlestick and that smell, uh, that's a smell of incense, that's a picture of your prayer life. And when you're going to do the work in there, that the only light you got is off that candlestick. Over against the bread, type of the Word of God. Clearly showing you that the only thing you're going to learn out of the Bible is based on the Holy Spirit of God and your prayer life, the altar of incense. Oh, but let's, before we go any farther, let's stop and just look at this thing in its entirety. The fire that lights those candles and the fire to start that incense is the fire off the brazen altar out in front. Point is this, ladies and gentlemen, and if you don't really hear anything else I say today, you need to hear this. The point is this. Everything that was done in that inner tabernacle that is a picture of what you and I do for Christ, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, our prayer life, the fire that got it going had to go off the sacrifice of the animal on the brazen altar. My point is simply this. If you and I don't do everything we do, everything, 
Everything we do is not lit, and the fire that fires it does not come off. Your understanding and your attitude about what Christ did for you in the cross and his death on the cross is not the motivation for what you and I do based on you understanding it, you're wasting your time. Go be a Mormon. Go be something else. Go do something else. I'm telling you right now, as a child of God, you are wasting your time, whatever you're doing, if you don't trace it back to what he did, the fire on the brazen altar when he was crucified on that cross needs to be the motivation for everything you do. Everything we do as a child of God needs to be based on our understanding of what he did for us. Boy, does that not cause us some problems in what we do? That's why we studied this last week. The Bible says that the foundation you lay is the day you got saved. And then you're to build on that foundation the rest of your life three things. And the first thing you're to build is gold. And we talked about that being a picture of the deity of Christ. The second thing we build on it is silver, the price of redemption, what Christ did for you. And then the third thing is precious stones. That's the people that God puts in your life that you influence based on your knowledge of him and what he did. You see, the only way to keep that fire off the altar. Now, you do remember in that story, I think it's back in Leviticus chapter 11, and maybe Leviticus 3 also. You do remember back there that there were some sons of Aaron who God killed. Somebody raise your hand and tell me when I pick, call on you, why God killed them? Why did God kill them? You already got too much notoriety today. You got to sing. Chris? They use strange fire. What does that mean, strange fire? I thought fire was fire. No, no, no. It means that they got the fire to do the things of God someplace else other than the older. And we, like the sons of Aaron today, we offer a lot of strange fire to God and then wonder why at the judgment seat of Christ we're not going to have everything that God wants us to have. I'm telling you, folks, and I love you with all of my heart, and if anybody doesn't know that my life is not in this church and committed to the people in this church to help you get everything you need to do, then, then you don't know me very well. But I'm also telling you this. Attitude of heart seems like it's the hardest thing to do. Keeping your attitude of heart seems like it's the hardest thing to do, but it's not really when you just simply build on that foundation, gold, silver, and precious stone. You know what our problem is? We build, we build too many other things on it. What he did for you, we talk about perspective, purpose, and passion. Very frankly, what he did for you ought to drive everything you do for him. And, uh, you know, the building these strings on your foundation will ensure the right attitude. It's not hard, but it's just biblical. And we all struggle with this. We all struggle with doing what the Bible says when our human nature wants to do something else. And that is the constant fight that you and I have to come. Now, you can overcome that, but you only overcome that by putting the things in your life. All right, we also saw, and these are not in the order. We looked at them last week. We saw the concept of being labors together, the unity that we have. We saw the concept of being a husbandman. We now know that a husband is somebody who tends to the gar a garden, in this case, God's garden of people. We saw the incredible concept that we are to be a wise master builder. And then it talked about that we are to take heed how we build, about our body being God's temple and God's house. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what we looked at last week, this shows you the mechanics of the judgment seat of Christ. It shows you how it all works, the cause and effect, so to speak. 
the complete breakdown of all the crucial areas that we need to see and understand. And it's absolutely crucial that we understand this. Clearly from this passage, and we looked at it last week, we now have everything we need to see and understand uh, as it's, it's related to us. Remember now, just in a brief recap, we saw how that when we got saved, that's when we laid the foundation. And then the rest of our lives, we build upon that foundation, gold, silver, precious stone. You see, God has a plan for your life if you're saved this morning. Something he wants you to do. And the only way you're going to do that is to get in God's plan. And the only way you're going to get in God's plan is to understand that it's gold, silver, and precious stone. And then when you build it that way, you're guaranteed to have the right attitude in what you do. Now, I say that, and let me say this. We always don't have the right attitude. There's things in my life that times I don't have the right attitude about. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect in the right attitude, But I told you last week that God's not looking for perfection, is he? He's looking for consistency. And there is a way that God has put in that Bible that you may have the worst day in your life, up and down and every temptation and everything, and may fall down 600,443 times in a day. But yet you can still end the day in fellowship with God with the right attitude of heart. And, of course, we've talked about that in our discipleship and talked about it many, many times. Now, today we're going to look at the, the second definitive verse, or passage, really. This one does not deal with the components of the judgment seat of Christ, but really shows us the reality of it. And uh, it deals with the fact that how God takes our salvation and our life after we're saved more seriously than we do. And you know what? Reality uh, is the thing that we all are missing in our lives today. We need this because that's really our biggest issue, the reality of life. You know, we live in such a world of an illusion. Everything around us today, everything that you see on television, everything that you listen to, even the music you listen to, it's all built, it's all built around a fairy tale world that just does not exist. I mean, uh, you go to see movies, and, you know, most movies, 99% of them, you know, you go through some tough time in the movie, you cry, you laugh, they have some day. But at the end, in most cases, not always, but in 99.9% of them at the end of the movie, you know what you have? You have, it ends well. You know, they get back together or they fix this or they do this or they, they thought he was dead and then they find out he wasn't and all those things. And you go out of there with the up and down of the emotion. Well, it started out good, they fell in love, or they did this, or they did that, and then it looked like the tragedy hit, but at the end of the movie, ah, you know what, it's, it's, everything is good, and I feel good about it. And you know what, we get the illusion that life is like that. And just because you go to a movie, and the movie producer and the director have guaranteed the movie is going to end well, there's no guarantees in life, is there? The reality is that if you're going to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's always going to be a price to pay for it. And reality is based on simply understanding, simply understanding what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish in the light of what God has told you. You hear me talk about perspective, purpose, and passion, three incredible concepts. You hear me talk about accountability, responsibility, and attitude. You guys are going down to Wichita. We love you. We'll be praying for you, okay? Have a good time down there. Tell everybody I said hi. Good. 
We talk about accountability, responsibility, and attitude. We talk about understanding the concept of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. You hear me talk about self-discipline, staying focused, and being self-motivated. All these things I talk about and keep before you and harp on you all the time is the reality of what we're looking at here someday when we stand before God and give an account of what and why we did what we did after we were saved in light of what we could have done because of the Bible that God gave us. You know, there's three terrible places in the Bible. I've got a sermon on this. The three most terrible places in the Bible that I found where God makes an incredible statement, at least on two of them. And the most terrible three places in the Bible that I found are all three judgments. You remember I told you last week or two weeks ago there were seven judgments in the Bible, but three of them are the most terrible judgments that I've ever found any place, and they really mark the most terrible places in the Bible. Now, the first one is the nation of Israel going through the tribulation period. We're told in the book of Matthew, around 24, that there's no worse time on the planet Earth for these people to go through the tribulation. And I think the thing that God says about that, it really just puts the hair up in the back of my neck. Maybe it won't do much for you. You got to read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63 sometime of what God's attitude is on the tribulation period. I mean, when you read that knowing that they're his people and this is his attitude on it, man, that thing scared the fire out of you. The second most terrible time that I found in the Bible is the great white throne judgment. That'd be this judgment over here. That's where all the unsaved men and women all down through history stand before God at the great white throne and because of their denial of trusting Christ as their own personal Savior, every man, every woman who's lived their life down through since the beginning of time, uh, Adam right on down, that never trusted Christ as their personal Savior, they, they're dumped into the lake of fire. And I think that is probably the, one of the most terrible times found in the Bible. And in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41... He says something that is absolutely terrifying to me. And I'm a saved man. But I can't imagine standing there before a holy God that you have laughed at and made fun of all of your life and that you thought (laughs) you were in control of your life when in reality you were not. And this whole thing is God set up and the way he wants to do it. And for you to hear those words like thunder come down before you're dumped into the lake of fire where he says, depart from me, ye cursed and everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's a tragic thing. That scares me to death and I'm saved. The third most terrifying time in the Bible, I think, is where we're going to be at today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and that will be the judgment seat of Christ. And the thing that's terrifying to me about that is that you're going to see this today. That when you come to this point in this judgment, the thing that is the most terrifying to me. I mean, when I look at Israel and I, I see God dealing and judging with Israel and see what he says back there in the Old Testament about that, that's one thing. When I go to the great white throne judgment and I see what God says about it there, that's something else. And those things terrify me. But the thing that really terrifies me from Second Corinthians chapter 5 and all the verses in the Bible, when we go to the judgment seat of Christ and we stand before God, you know what? He doesn't say one thing, not one word. He doesn't say one thing. You know why? Because there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say. You had everything you had. You see an unsaved man? He rejected it, but God has something to say to him. 
The nation of Israel, they rejected God in the Old Testament sense. He had something to say to them. But you and me, we're part of his body. You have the ability right now that nobody else in the whole history of the world of the Bible had. <coughs> you can know everything about God, what he thinks, what he says, because God's given you the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and his body, the local church. And you know what? When we stand there before him, there'll be nothing to say. Your standing there will say it all. You will either stand there with everything that you've got, with the gold and the crowns and all of the precious stones, or that fire will do the speaking. And it'll try it, and it'll be purified, or you'll simply stand there with the wood, hay, and stubble, and the fire come in. There's nothing to say. I think the most terrible, tragic thing in all of the Bible is for a child of God to stand before God when all of his life he had or she had the ability to know better and then to stand there and lose everything. And God says nothing. You ever, when you were a kid growing up, did you ever let your parents down in some fashion uh, and do something that was really bad and really let them down? And when they dealt with you on it, you wish they would have whipped you to death, throwed you under the car, backed up, run over you four or five times, threw you out with a dog, not fed you for six months. But they didn't do anything. And you looked up and you saw without them saying a word in their face and their eyes was enough to bring you to your knees of you knowing the fact that, boy, I really let them down. Well, take that and magnify it a hundred million times when we stand there before Almighty God and Christ on the throne. And we have to look into those eyes and understand all that he had for us and what we did not do for him. It's going to be an incredible day. Now let's begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and let's look at it here, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm about to read today ought to be rated R for its content and maturity. It's a very disturbing passage. If I was on the radio right now doing this, or I was on television, I'd tell everybody to send the kids out of the room. This is the most without a doubt, the most sobering day in all of the Bible for you and I as God's people. Incredible. Now he says in verse 1, For we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we, in, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that which would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men uh, that we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Now, Father... We come to you today and we ask you to give us the wisdom and insight into this great passage. There's so much here. 
And there's never a time that when I preach something like this where I know that eternally uh, these people, millennial inheritance, hangs in the balance. Uh, Lord, that I don't tremble at your word and, and, and ask you to give me everything in the right sense, in the right context, with everything I need to say. And Lord, I pray now today you'll take this, that you'll use it for your honor and glory, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, as we did in the previous chapter last week, let's begin to break this passage down a literally almost verse by verse, and we can better understand it. Now, the first thing here is in verse 1, and it says this, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, basically, and we've talked about this many, many times, you and I are made up of a body, soul, and spirit. Right now, if you're sitting here, you have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And he's talking about the earthly body being dissolved. In other words, you die, or the Lord comes back. What he's saying is here, if you die, what we know is that inside you, you have an eternal body. We know it as your soul. When Christ comes back, it becomes a glorified body. It's eternal. And what he's saying here in verse 1 is that if you lose your earthly body, you bury it in the ground, you're dead, but your soul lives for eternity. And when Christ comes back and you get that glorified body, it's going to live for eternity. And that's why he notice he tells you down here that it's a building of God, a house not made with hands. You see that thing? Your mom and dad in their conceiving of you had nothing to do with this. This body is made without hands. Now, for those of you that are Bible students or want to be a Bible student, you want to write down along that the note over there in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. You see, you have a spiritual body not made with hands. We've talked about the doctrine of spiritual circumcision out of Colossians chapter 2. What really took place the day you got saved. What does it say over there? It says that you got saved by an operation of God. What? Made without hands. You see that thing? Now you want to run those two verses back to each other. That's exactly how this thing begins to build. So the first thing we want to look at is you have an eternal spiritual body that is going to go before the judgment seat of Christ when your physical body goes down to the undertaker. Now look at the next verse, verse 2. For in this, what he said in verse 1, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. Now what he's saying there, there's a desire to have this spiritual eternal body clothed. Now, let's take another thing. We, uh, we studied last week out of Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Remember that? And we talked about how the bride hath made herself ready. And we talked about that being the church going to the judgment seat of Christ. What did the Bible say back there that, that they got? Anybody remember? Raise your hand. What the Bible says they got back there in Revelation chapter 19 after the bride had made herself ready. And then it tells you what it was. What was it? Anybody know? <laughs> Anybody know? Anybody? Oh, yeah, Roy? Yeah, pure linen. Yeah, pure linen. And what did it say that that pure linen was? The righteousness of the saints. Now, you want to connect those two passages. Those two passages connect together. Though I don't know why I'm even telling you this stuff. Nobody's even evidently writing it down except Roy. But anyway, you have the connecting passage going back where now when it, this spiritual body desires to be clothed, we now know what the clothing is. The clothing is the white linen, which is a picture, as the Bible says in Ephesians, without spot. 
without wrinkle. And now that is the righteousness of the saints. So that's what clothes this spiritual body. Ah, look at verse 3 and 4. If so, be that being clothed, we should not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, the thing that I want you to draw your attention to, and basically this whole sermon is going to be built on this verse, is the fact that verse 3 tells us that somebody at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be found naked. Now, this is about the greatest unknown doctrine. And uh, you know what? Yeah, what heresy is this? Yes, Bible heresy. That verse clearly tells you in the context of the judgment seat of Christ that somebody is going to be naked. Now, we're going to trace this thing down and find out. We already know what the clothing is now. We already know that if this earthly body is dissolved, we have a spiritual body internal in the heavens which desires to be clothed. Look what he says in verse 4. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened. For that we would be, not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. He's saying here right now in our physical body, we groan being burdened. Not for the fact that we'll be unclothed, but we want to be clothed. In other words, right now we need to understand and be burdened about this day so we're not the ones that are naked when that day comes. Because we already know now in verse 3 that somebody is going to be naked. If so, be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. And somebody's worried about not having the clothes on that spiritual body and being found naked. Now look at verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 here. Now he that wrought us for the self-stained thing is God, who also hath given us the earnest of the Spirit. Now what does that mean, earnest of the Spirit? It means you need to get earnest about it. Earnest means you need to get moving on it. It means you need to be, you need to be motivated. What he's saying here that God has put this thing in here, and you, uh, by the earnest of the Spirit, you need to move on it. You need to be motivated by it. Therefore, we are always confident. That knowing while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and, and willing rather uh, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Now, verse 8 is a great verse by itself. This is one of these standalone verses. And this is a great verse when you lose a loved one. This is a great verse when people say, well, uh, where's, my, where's, my, where's my husband? Where's my wife? Where's my child? Where's my grandma? Where's my granddad? When they pass away. And, of course, we know now that this is a great verse of comfort because this verse tells you that if they're a saved person, the moment they're absent from this body, they are present with the Lord. And that's a great thing. Now, I'm going to give you a little verse here that you want to go along with this, a passage, really. Uh, You want a great passage to put along that? If you're in a situation where uh, you're facing death or you're facing the concept of death or maybe you just want to learn it so you can help somebody else, the passage that goes along with this great verse will be found in Psalms 139, verses 1 through 24. And if you have any trouble understanding that passage, you come to me and I'll be glad to sit down and break it out. It is one of the greatest, most comforting passages anywhere in the Word of God for a child of God. Now look at verse 8. We are confident. We are confident. Now, I'm going to tell you something. And this is not my message, but I, want to th- I always like to kind of throw these things out. A lot of you have a problem. And it's a natural problem. 
And it's a problem that every young Christian has. And that is the fact that you have a lack of confidence. And, uh, you know, when we talk about going out like the kids going down to, to, uh, uh, to uh, Wichita, and Aaron and Amy gave their testimony the first time down, and I'm sure you got great confidence from that. So now Aaron's going to do it down at the mission coming up here. I just talked to him about it this morning. And I thought, are you rolling dice, Aaron? And he said, no, my knees are knocking together. But anyway, it builds confidence. It builds confidence. Now, if you want confidence as a child of God, let me give you a little insight. And anybody can do this. Go home sometime. I was going to say a rainy afternoon. That would be today. After we all eat at the Mexican restaurant, you know, you'll be ready for a nap. But anyway, bottom line is this. Take your concordance and simply find the word confident. And running that through your Bible, you'll find out of all of them that's in there about 14 or 15 things that you and I are told as Christians that we need to be confident in. Take those 14 or 15 things, make a list out of them, and then go to work on them. You think that you just come to church every Sunday and you come to church and do all this stuff and then someday you just wake up and you're confident? No. Confidence becomes as you do things for the Lord and as you take the Word of God and you go through that Bible and find out the things that He tells you that we as God's people need to be confident in. Incredible stuff. Make a great sermon. And there's about 14 or 15 things in there that he tells us in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we are confident. Two are right here. One is where your loved ones go or where you go when you die. All right, now verse 9. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. That's a great verse. Notice the key word there. And there's going to be a lot of word studies going on today in here. Notice the word, uh, notice the word, uh, pre, uh, wherefore we labor. And we saw that last week in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, where we were to be laborers together. And it says, wherefore, because of what I just said, we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now, that's a great concept. It says, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now, here's the deal. And this is the reality of the Christian life, isn't it? We all, uh, you know, all know people, and, uh, and, I, and I know nobody's perfect, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking about consistency, but we all know people who go to church on Sunday and pretend they're spiritual and then live like hell the rest of the week. I mean, let's just be honest about it. We know people that are one way on Sunday, and the rest of the week, they pretty much do their own thing. I'm sure we don't have anybody in here that way, but I'm sure in times past in your life, if you're about five years old or older, you've met people along that line. Bottom line is this. What he's saying here is simply this. We need to live every day of our lives consistent. We need to live our lives next week as you go out to work, just like if you were standing at him with the judgment seat of Christ. You know, Christianity, Christianity is, is for time and, and, and mortality has been a, you know, the problem, as I said, has been a reality check. We actually think we can live what we want to live and do what we want to do all week long and then come into church and work with people and do this and do that, but then right back into it. The verse is saying that we ought to live our lives right now here just like we would were, live them if we were standing before God. And that's the reality of life. We think God doesn't see. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled on, on young people was to get them to think that if the smoke was thick and the lights were dark and the music was loud, that God couldn't see what was going on. God knows everything we do. He knows every thought we have, and he knows every motive behind it. 
and it's good when you build on this foundation gold, silver, and precious stone that you develop the concept, the consistency, I might say. You're never going to be perfect at it. But the bottom line is we got to keep our eye on that day in everything that we do. You know, and, and uh, we, it's, it's so, so simple. I mean, if all, unsaved, all an unsaved person has to do to write his life is to get saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Thou shalt confess with thy love, love the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart the God. In verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all a Christian has to do is get right. All a Christian has to do is just stop with God and say, I'm out of line, I've not been doing it right, I've been inconsistent, and I want to make this thing work. First John chapter 1, verse 9. But he says, present or absent, we should live our lives now just as if we were in his presence, because the reality, my friend, is we really are. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment, and, and um, we're going to do a little word study here, but I want you to see the concept of God. And you don't want to miss things like this. God is always reading our motives. You notice the judgment seat of Christ is the things about done in the body. You know why God put that little thing in there? Nobody ever sees that. You know why? Because we got a hundred million people out there that are Christians that when they're dead and gone, they're going to leave all their money to God. They don't do anything now because they want to have it all to themselves. They, they have got themselves to the place where they think that they'll live their life now, have all they want to have, do all that they want to do, get all that they want to have, and then when they're dead and they can't use it anymore, they'll give it to God. And they actually think that there's some kind of reward that comes along with that. You better read that verse right there. It says the things done in the body. Once you're dead, there are no more rewards coming down the line for you leaving everything that you wanted to keep to yourself now. You see how God does that? That's exactly how God does that. He reads down. The Bible is the only book. You've heard me say it a million times. The Bible is the only book in the world that when you open it up and start to read it, it starts to read you. It reads every motive we have. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. That it discerns the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And there's nothing that is not manifest in his sight. All things are open unto the eyes of him which we have to do. And that's an that's a incredible passage. All right, he says we must all appear. Now, let's look at some words here. Last week, we saw the importance of some words, didn't we? We saw husbandry. We now understand that now. We saw the great word abide, and, uh, and we talked about that. We saw God's building, and we ran that one. We talked about gold, silver, precious stones. I looked at all that and laid it all out for you. Now, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. Two verses here. 5, 3 says, not be found naked. There's our first word. <clears throat> And look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's our second word. Now, two little words, the word naked and the word appear. Now, let me show you how to do a word study in your Bible. And uh, turn back to Revelation chapter 3. And you want to see this. This is, this, is worth the, this is worth the time. Sometimes I say don't bother turning. This time I'm saying bother turning. Now, this is called studying your Bible by word association. One of the great ways to study your Bible, word studies. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. <clears throat> and under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eyes sad, that thou mayest see. Now let me just explain to you the context here so you understand where I'm coming from. If you look at our chart over there, and most of you have gazed over it and looked at it sometime, you'll find that in the church, in church history, the history of the church, starts from crucifixion up to the rapture. We know, if you've been around here any length of time at all, we've, we've talked about it, how that there's seven periods of church history. And the last period of church history, as I told you when we started our message today, is the Laodicean church. And that, without a doubt, is the worst one. It's the one, but the name means rights of the people. It's basically a church that just have <coughs> dumped God and everything about God, <coughs> have lost the reality of God, and lost all the central great keys of the Bible. I could preach on it for hours and have over the years, and so most of you understand that. But the Laodicean church is the church period that we live in. Now, let me tell you something, and I mean this. I mean this. Forty years ago, when I was just getting into all this, <coughs> and this goes to show you how... <coughs> Uh, progressive revelation. As time goes on, God reveals things to you that maybe you didn't see when you were there. <clears throat> but 40 years ago, when I was just getting into this, I looked at it from the aspect of very basically, you know, that when we talked about the Laodicean church, back then in my day, that was the, the, uh, the groups, the churches that uh, were, were pretty much non-biblical. Uh, they come out of the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation, like the Lutherans, the Methodists, uh, the Presbyterians. And in my day at 40 years ago, <clears throat> when I was uh, just getting into all this, uh, when we talked about the Laodicean church, that's what we looked at. Because from where we were at, and this would be back in 1970, <clears throat> uh, where we were at back then, you know, everybody pretty much had a good handle on things. And uh, it was the churches that had left the Roman Catholic Church for the right reason in the Reformation with Martin Luther, but now had gone back to the liberal way. So in our mind 40 years ago, it was the, those were the group. That was the Laodicean church. As time went on, by the time we got to the, to the 80s, and we got into the, into the, and saw the thing going where churches, Baptist churches, were departing from the word of God left and right, and, they, and this whole spirit had come down and just destroyed uh, churches with the Bible. We then re, uh, we, we, we redefined our position as we moved on and saw it and said, wow, you know what? It wasn't them guys. It's, it's, it's the churches who, that were once Bible-believing. That The pastors started out really believing the Bible, and 20, 30 years later, now they don't believe it anymore. There's the Laodicean church. And now here I am in 2010. And today, I want to, and I mean everything I'm saying here with all of my heart, <clears throat> and maybe most of you won't get this, but uh, for the young men and young ladies that are someday going to run this church and already helping me in the ministry and taking on everyday responsibility, uh, I'm telling you today, uh, to me, it's very clear that uh, it's not just the churches that have dumped the Bible, but honestly, our own church, our own church today. Yeah, Old Past Baptist Church. 
has the danger of falling into being a Laodicean church. It really does. It really does. It's an incredible thing. You see, he says in verse 10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. And you see that great verse there, chapter 3, verse 10? That's an incredible verse. Because it tells us that this is in the period before, in the Philadelphia. Now, you've heard me say many, many times that what I want to do, well, we talked about this before we even officially started our church. My concept was to build a Philadelphian church in the middle of the Laodicean church period. And that was really a catchy little phrase, and I really threw that around a lot. Little did I know how hard that was going to be. And now I've come to the conclusion where it may be almost, it may be impossible to do. It may be impossible to do. And, but in that Philadelphian church, I want you to notice that God told them that there was a time coming that was going to be the hour of their temptation. And he says, which shall come upon all the world to try them would dwell upon the earth. Now, the, that temptation is basically to cease from going and living your life by the word of God and getting another set of standards in there that looks Christian and looks spiritual, but have nothing to do with the Bible. Then we saw in verse 11, chapter 3, last week, the other warning we saw. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now, here, now you need to look at that verse. Here's what he says. Hold fast that which thou hast. He's not saying hold fast and hang on. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, now just hold on, I'm coming, <clears throat> but hold on and hold fast and I'll be there. Hang on by your fingernails if you have to. Put your legs around and hold on to it. Hold on. He's not saying that. He's saying you got something and somebody wants to take it from you and you'll be tempered, pressured, advised to give it up. And it's not just the Bible. It's your millennial inheritance. The Christianity that we live in today, the Christianity that this church tries to survive in, is, a, is, a, is an area where you know this is so true. There hardly isn't a week go by that somebody that you don't talk to at work or from another church looks how stupid you are because you believe one book. Because you do the things that you do and believe the things that you believe. And you'll be tempted to give those things up. This church will be tempted to compromise with the stands that we have. I, I want to be very honest with you. I, to you young men and young ladies, for the next 20 or 30 years, if Jesus tarries is coming, you know, uh, and you have to take this work over. I want you to know, I, I, I feel sorry for you on one hand. This is why I, 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 I understand some things that, that probably most of you don't understand. That's my job to see those things. And I know what is going to come this way to this church. And I know what has happened to every church where a, a strong leader came in and believed the Bible and, and laid it down and, and got the thing going. When he passes off the scene, almost in every case, the church just folds up and, and goes into apostasy and into a mess. Now, the reason why they have had that happened in the past, and I'll also tell you this, is because the guy, even though he may have been a great preacher and a great Bible teacher and great in a lot of things, he did not have the balance that he needed to have that he was training individuals up to take the thing over. All he was seeing was short-sighted where he was. He wasn't looking long down the road where he may not be there. But I'm telling you, I feel sorry for you. 
It's going to be a fight. My biggest fight within the ministry, without hands down, hands down, my biggest fight within the ministry is to keep that attitude and spirit of Laodicea out of our own church. This church is not immune to it. I mean, it's not like a 500-pound rhinoceros coming down the steps and coming in here. Everybody would say, wow, get out of the way. There's a rhinoceros. Laodicea creeps very slowly. If you don't have the things in place to catch it, 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 it it's in before you know. I, I look at, and this is no attack to the new people coming in, but I understand that, that the new people getting saved and coming in, we've got to be patient with them. And I'll tell you why. Because there, and many times we don't see this because we're in a world where we have everything around the Bible. We, many of us have grown up in churches for years. We don't understand that the new people coming in absolutely understand nothing about what's going on in the Bible for the most part. Every once in a while you get some people come in and they've been in churches and they've been around and they just got a short end of the stick and they have a good handle. I'm talking about the, the abundance of people that we keep getting saved and keep coming to this church. For the most part, they know absolutely nothing. And it's real easy for them to come in and just, you know, and, 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 and bring in and not understand what they've got to get out of their life. It happens a lot of different ways. And our job is to help them. I, I taught you when we talked about the book of Nehemiah. Remember the last two uh, uh, prayer group meetings that we had? I took the guys and I took the gals and I, 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 I quantified for you the thing in Nehemiah and I showed you the nine gates and I showed you the wall and I made the comparison of what we're doing in our own church. And I told you that the wall around that city, the city being a picture of the church, was the doctrine that we stand for. And then within that wall, you had nine gates where people came in and people came out. We went through all of those gates. But I told you that the job of the people that were in that city, the elders of that city, we talked about elders. The job of the elders, you had some elders that stood on top of that wall 24-7. They worked in shifts, and their job was to look way out long range to see if there was anybody coming to attack their city. Then you had elders that were standing at the gates. And they watched as the people came in. Remember that story back there in, uh, well, there's two in the Bible. The one is about the story of Rahab where she hides the spies. And the other one is the, uh, uh, the story of Lot in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, when the two angels come in and he takes them up in his house. And if you notice in both cases, they, everybody comes, they, they come right to Rahab's house. And the, 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 uh, the Sodomites in and, uh, Genesis 19, they know right to go to Lot's house. Now, how did they know that? You know why? Because there were people standing at the gates to watch everybody who came in and everybody who came out. And he basically tells them over there in uh, G- Genesis 19, hey, there's some new guys in town. How did they know that? Because in the Old Testament, there were elders at those gates. And those elders, you ever been to a foreign country? And it doesn't happen much when you go to Europe, but boy, I remember when we went to Africa. Boy, I mean, they went through everything you had, especially if you were American. White American, boy, they got it because they wanted, they knew you were rich or they thought you were rich and they were going to hit you for everything. I mean, you got hit with an airport tax or a sidewalk tax, a restaurant tax. Well, I haven't eaten here yet, but no, but you probably will. And they hit you with every tax in the world. They will put your, you put everything out there and everything you wanted and everything that they wanted, if you had two of, they took one, you kept one. 
I know they went through everything you got. They went, they, when you, they went through your cameras. They went through this. They went through that. And they were looking at everything. You know why? Because they did not want you bringing any contraband into their country. Drugs were big then. And, uh, you know, and uh, they, people would come down there and they would see some of the amazing things. They would hide hash and marijuana and all those things and, and empty shaving cans and everything in the world. They would tear it apart one side up from down the other. And, of course, uh, they were trying to keep stuff from coming in and then keep stuff from going out. And a lot of times I thought to myself, you know, that's what we at a church do. Not in the same radical fashion, but that's what really discipleship is. That's why when people come in who don't know anything about the Bible, many times they have a lot of weird ideas about the Bible, somebody has to go through their luggage. And in this case, that would be sitting down with discipleship, going through the Bible, teaching them the basics, and then working through the things they don't understand. You go back to Nehemiah, you know what? You had two kinds of elders. They had the ones that looked long-range and the ones that looked short-range. And that's exactly, that's exactly what every church needs, and that's exactly what churches don't do. That's the reason for our Iron Man groups, our prayer groups. I mean, uh, it's a thing where in time, um, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you, in fact, this next couple of, this next two weeks, if you're, if you're the next two times we have, if you're somebody who are actually in your mind thinking, I'm going to be part of this scenario and I'm going to really uh, be part of getting this thing down the line and be here 20 years from now or 10 years from now or whatever and really help get this thing. And Because I, I, my goal was to take everything apart in this church, every fiber, every piece of it, and to show you why it worked. Because you're going to be standing up against the day without me looking over your shoulder that you're going to have to know these things. And the next session... These next two sessions, we're going, to take, uh, we're going to take maybe the rest of this year, and we're going to start focusing on everything about this church you need to know from the inside. I'm going to show you things that you have never seen in your life. I'm going to show you how to read things. I'm going to show you how you can, you, all, gear, all geared for one thing, and that is to keep you from allowing the spirit of Laodicea to move in, because that's the greatest pressure we have. I'm going to teach you two of the greatest words in ministry as a leader or a pastor, especially a pastor. I'm going to teach you the two greatest words in the ministry. And you might think they were some great spiritual word like, you know, uh, propitiation or, you know, justification. No, no, no. The two greatest words you'll ever have in ministry in your back pocket to figure out what's going on is simply the word least and most. If you get a comprehension of how to use those two words, you're pretty much guaranteed to be successful. And we're going to start tearing it apart. And we're going to start going through it. And uh, the future of this church is, is still, as far as I'm concerned, is still in doubt. You know why? Because I learned a great lesson years and years and years and years ago, and it's simply this. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And if the leadership is not developed, if I don't have the, the vision and the foresight to develop it, if I don't let the young men and the young ladies expand who they are and get full, bore who they go, what happens when I'm off the scene? I'll tell you what happens. is what happens in every church. It folds up. And everything in this church, as everything in life, ladies and gentlemen, rises and falls on the leadership of it. That's true of your families. That's true at your job. That's true of whatever you do in life. You hear the chiefs, and they talk about the royals, and they talk about this, and they'll talk about this football player. And you'll say, you know what? He, he's, a great, uh, he's not only a great football player, he really pulls the team together. When they have an issue, he's there. Everything rises and falls on leadership.
everything. And that's one of the greatest lessons I ever learned many, 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 many years ago when I felt my whole philosophy of ministry and life around that concept. Because I'm telling you, we've been already warned that there's some things that we have to hold fast or somebody's going to take them from us. Now, let's look at our word study here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Watch this. Now, I already showed you that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, you found the word naked. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, you found the word appear, as in appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, watch this thing. Revelation 3, 17. This is called a word study. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and knowest not that thou art poor, blind, and naked. Now, mark that right there. Somebody's naked. Look at verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment. There it is, Revelation chapter 19, the clothing that they're worried about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, that thou mayest be clothed and at the shame of thy nakedness. There it is again. Watch the next word. Do not appear. See those words? Appear naked, shame, white raiment, because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse says, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and somebody is afraid, verse 3, they're going to be naked. That warning's to us. That warning of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is written to us. You can take those words and run them right back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 3, and run them right back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 in the Laodicean church period. The church period that we're living in right now. And you can run those words back. Those white raiments to clothe you, we found them in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. And we now know that they are the righteous of the saints. Shame of thy nakedness, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. We found that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 5, verse 3. Desiring to be clothed that we should not be found naked. Nakedness not appear, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Boy, it's to us, man. It's to us. Now, that's a word study. That's taking the words here and comparing them here and knowing the two appearings. Talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, my dear friend. Now, I want to talk about another concept. Now, if you had a problem with what I've said so far, we don't have any seatbelts on these things, but pretend you buckle them in because you ain't going to like this at all. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. What a foreign concept. What I'm about to talk to you about right now in this next section is so foreign to God's people, I don't expect many of you to get it. I really don't. What I'm about to say to you is so out of touch with the norm and so radically out of reality of where God's people are living their lives today that the verses that I'm going to show you, we probably don't even know they're in the Bible. Part of that problem is because of the Bibles they are in, they've been changed so radically you can't get the context out of them anyhow. Now, these next couple of verses we do want to look at. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Now, we now do know that the gold is Christ, God. And we know now that when we lay that foundation, we're to build on that foundation gold, silver, and precious stones. We now know that gold is who God is. The silver is what God did for us. And then the precious stones are the people that God put us in our life. 
And when we come to the Laodicean church, we are also told that this church, you and me, and I'm telling you, this is what we have to fear. This is what we can't take our finger off the trigger. We've got to always be on the watch for this because it's always going to be trying to creep in. The devil will find every back door that's unlocked, every back basement window that there's no latch on, and he will seep it in somehow, some way, and come in. And before we know it, it'll be here, and it'll do its irreparable damage. That's why we need elders on the wall, elders at the gate. Gold tried in the fire. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. What does that mean? It means that he was crucified outside the city. That would be Gordon's Calvary, if you're a historical Bible student. Everybody else teaches today that he was, he was, he was uh, crucified inside the city. And we studied that when we come through church history with Constantine being the church of the Holy Sepulcher. Well, the Bible says that he was crucified outside the gate. That would be Gordon's Calvary. And that, is, that it means something in the Bible. That means that when he was outside of the city, it means that his own city, because we know that he is the king of Jerusalem, it's telling us that his own city threw him out. Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. He came to Jerusalem as the king of the Jews and the, the, the importance of seeing that he's crucified outside the city is the fact that the very city and the very people who he came to threw him out. I think we have the phrase today, on the outside looking in. Verse 13. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. Now let me ask you a question. Honestly, people, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? He suffered without the gate. His own city, his own people threw him out rejected what he had to say and what he had to say was the truth and then the Bible says that you and I as his people go unto him what does it say in Philippians that I may know him the power of his resurrection the what fellowship of his sufferings he suffered without the gate we are to suffer without the camp bearing his reproach and then the last part of that verse in 14, for we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. This old world's not your home. Why are we so comfortable here? Why do we get along with unsafe people? Why do we get along with worldly God's people who don't like the Bible or get an attitude? How, how can you and I, if we're, if we're suffering with him, they threw him out of the city. You know what we try to do? We try to walk the, right down the middle of the road in Christianity today. We don't want to take a stand for nothing. We're afraid we'll lose some friends. We're afraid we'll lose some family members. We're afraid we'll, we'll, we'll offend somebody. We're, we're afraid that we'll do this or we'll do that. And this will happen. But I'm telling you, if you want to buy gold tried in the fire, which is told to you and me, it has to be him on that foundation. And the trials of your life that you go through right now, 
the persecution of being outside of norm, being the radical, being whatever they want to say. When somebody gets their nose out of joint about this or that, you stay true to the principles of the Word of God. That's how you buy the gold tried in the fire. It's tried in the fire of this life, and it gets purged in the fire of that life. Nobody even knows that today. I might as well be out on a windy day with a 60-mile-an-hour gale in my face screaming into the wind. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. My dear friends, my dear brethren, what do we do after these verses with our lives? Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians 1, verses 29. For, un, for unto you, you and me, it is given in the behalf of Christ. Not on your behalf, not on my behalf. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Ah, what are you going to do with that? Oh, you like the first part, don't you? All right, up to the fact that you have to go against a friend of yours that maybe isn't doing what's right. Or you have a family member. Or you have this or you have that. Oh, we like the first part. We'll do it on his behalf so we can believe. How about the suffering part? Now, let me just say this, because I know in every, in every situation, I'm not suffering, talking about suffering because you're stupid. There's a lot of God's people who are so immature, they shoot their mouth off or do things or say things, but because they don't have any, they don't have a zeal, but certainly not according to knowledge. And they're constantly getting themselves into trouble because of their idiots. They're an idiot. And they'll grow out of it in time, and they'll grow up in time, and they'll learn it, hopefully. But the bottom line is, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about you just, you know, reacting to something and doing something and then causing all kinds of chaos in your life. And you say, oh, I'm suffering for Christ. No, you're suffering because you're stupid. You're suffering because you haven't learned to choose your battles. You're suffering because in most cases you don't, haven't learned yet that when every issue you deal with, I don't care who says what. I don't care who accuses who or what. I don't care what anybody says. You are absolutely brain dead if you do not understand there are two sides to every story and get both sides before you open up your mouth. Ow. My mouth is not as big as I thought it was. Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. Philippians 1.29 says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's righteous suffering based on the principles of holding the line, holding fast what you have that no man take it. Now, we're over there in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at another one. Hebrews chapter 12. He says, looking unto, uh, uh, verse 2, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set down before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Bible says, for the joy, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He did it for you and me, and he became the author and the finish of our faith. Now he asks you and I to do it back for him. Now I'm telling you, and I've told you this before. I don't have a lot of, lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of respect for modern-day Christianity. 
I've met a lot of good people who love the Lord, and, and they're a whole different ballgame. But I'll tell you what, on the average Christian that I come across this in my life, they are absolutely, it, it, it's an absolutely, it's, it's an effeminate Christianity. It's absolutely effeminate. There's no steel in their backbone. They cave in to their godless Christian friends because they don't want to make any enemies. They always take the path of least resistance. They walk the middle of the road at the first sign of an issue or controversy. They put their tail between their legs and play the innocent bystander and run for cover. I mean, I see husbands who can't rule their wives, wives who won't follow their husbands, and, 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 and kids who won't do anything right. I mean, it's absolutely a mess. Absolutely a mess. And yet I know that it's just like it was back in the nation of Israel. I find God's people who, who, who are saved are on their way to heaven, and they could care less about what the Bible says about their own life. The nation of Israel had the same issue. Once we finish, once we finish Romans, which will be probably in another year or two, <clears throat> I'm going to take about a month, maybe a month and a half. And we talked about this Easter when I talked about the old throwback messages. And we're going to have a month of revival messages, maybe a month and a half. Now we are going to literally tear the paint off of these walls. I'm going to take you back to some old throwback messages that I preached 30 years ago. And I'm telling you what, for about a month, just maybe a month and a half, we're going to go back down memory's lane. And one of the messages I'm going to preach you is found in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. I first preached it. I got it dated in my Bible. I first preached it 32 years ago. And in that great passage back there, Ezekiel was faced with exactly what we're faced with today a nation that claimed to be God's people, but they were all messed up and about as, about as worthless as it could be. And God said in verse 30 through Ezekiel, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. And then he says, but I found none. You know what God's looking for today? He's looking for the same men and women that Bible says to, to make up the hedge, to stand in the gap. You know what that is? That's a breach in the line. That's a military concept. They got a breach in the line and the enemy's pouring through. And he needs one man, just one man that'll make up that hedge, that'll stand in that gap. And he couldn't find any. You know, <clears throat> reality. It ain't about coming to church. And about coming to Bible study. Those things are obviously going to help you. It's about you getting the right attitude of why you're even saved. It's about you getting the right concept of it's not what you do, it's why you do it. The motive behind it. How in the world are you ever going to stand in the gap for God when some of you men can't even stand in the gap in your family? I mean, we'll have, this, we'll have session after session after session after session. We'll go through the same stuff. I got, I'm, I'm making five tapes this next week. And the next time some of you come over, I'm just going to give you an hour, play the tape for an hour. It'll be the thing I said last week because i got nothing new to say. Why should I waste my time again? You want to come over and listen to the tape? Listen to it. But you know what? At a certain time, you have to start taking what you hear and you start have to applying it to your life to solve the problems that's there. That's the reality. We don't do that today. We don't do it at all. God's looking for a man. He can't find any today just like he couldn't find any back there. Do you, in any stretch of the imagination, 
based on the verses that I have just given to you, what you really have here. God has got a plan for you. And probably the very most you're going to live your life that you really have quality time to give God is maybe 20, maybe 30 years out of a whole life. Most of us don't get saved till we're 20. We fool around and dink around for another 10. Most people don't realize you sleep a third of that. Time you really work it all down. We've done it on Thursday night before. Probably even done it on Sunday morning. You probably got 10, 15, 20, maybe 25 years of quality time to give God. But God wants that quality time because he's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for you, and he's got something he wants you to do. And here's what it is. It didn't build a church. It didn't win people to Christ. Now, that's, you see, that's what we think it is. That's not reality. It isn't to be part of this ministry and help me. It isn't to say, well, I'm going to be one of those ones who are going to take this church over when Bob's good, dead and gone. Or, it, it, it's not even that. The, the job that he's got for you to do, the job that he's got for you to do is to bear his shame and reproach. That's what it is. Get in the attitude that everything you do, ladies and gentlemen, goes back to that fire off the brazen altar. Every decision you make, everything you hook up with, everything you do in your life goes back to what he did for you. And you do that by building on that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones. Most of us can't get past ourselves. That's our problem. We're too much in love with us. We could never fall in love with God because we love ourselves too much. We pamper ourselves too much. We wouldn't think of suffering through anything. Well, let me tell you something, folks. You can bear the shame and the reproach. You see, I told you last week, the judgment seat of Christ is God's great evening out process. Do you actually think that he's going to let people all down through church history who died tortured, martyred, gave up everything. We talked about some of them last week. Do you actually think he's going to allow them to suffer and go through and lose their families? I mean, they lose their families to typhoid fever on the mission field. You lose your family because of stupidity. You think it's going to weigh out the same? There were some of those guys that buried their wives on the mission field. You just bury yours in divorce papers. You think it's really going to, when, when, when I told you last week that everybody has exactly the same stuff to do that everybody else has, that you can actually do this and there's no reason why you can't, that you have everything you need, the problem is us. I don't want to. Do you think at the judgment seat of Christ, if you don't, while well, people are being naked and bearing the shame and the reproach down here, that when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to stand next to them and you're going to be clothed. God's great evening out process. It told you in verse 3, somebody is going to be naked at the judgment seat of Christ and you better groan right now and be burdened at it in you. Oh, it's big. Sit back and smile behind that fat face. It's big to kind of smirk when you hear things like this and you say, all right, where do you stand in that day? See, you can blow me off. I'm just a two-bit little tin horn preacher. But where do you stand before him? You won't blow him off. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Why do you think it's called the terror of the Lord? It's real simple. He hung naked. He bore the reproach. He suffered. He was ridiculed. He was made fun of. 
He was falsely accused. He was lied about before the whole world. And they finally kicked him out of the camp. Now you and me in this life will do the same for him. How you doing today? You bearing the shame, are you? Are you bearing the reproach? You have some of your friends that won't talk to you anymore as Christians because you're going to do what's right when they're not? Or do you cave in? Are you such a lily fish, jellyfish that you can't stand for anything? That's the latest in church. Told you I wouldn't like it. I'm telling you, Bible Christianity today reminds me of homosexualities. I don't mean they're all homosexuals after going with other men or other women. I mean there's just an effeminacy there that they just, they don't talk like real Christians. They don't, they don't have the steel in their backbone. They don't have the gravel in their gut. They just can't stand for anything. But there's a day coming. If you think, it's real quick, real simple. You either bear the approach down here for 10, 20 years, and bear the shame and the nakedness and the burden here. Or when you get to the judgment seat of Christ for a thousand years. I can't think. You'll bear the shame there for a thousand years. I can't think of a more shameful thing than a glorified body in the image of Jesus Christ. That everybody on the planet earth into the millennium uh, and however long it goes. Everybody knows everything of what Christ did. And now know the reason why you're naked is because in this life what God had you to do. You told God to stick it. See? And you wouldn't bear the shame. You wouldn't bear the reproach. You were too busy doing your thing. Well, now he's going to do his thing. You bear the shame here or you bear it over there. First Corinthians chapter 3 told you the mechanics. This one shows you that it's the, why it's called the terror of the Lord. He's going to even it out, folks. Get mad at me all you want. I don't care. I'm just telling you what the book says. You can get mad at me all you want. You cannot like my style, the way I do things. You know what? That's your call. But I'm telling you right now, you may not know it. I am your best friend you have today. I'm telling you about a day that is coming your way. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 says this, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... We persuade men, and we are a manifest unto God. That's what I'm doing. That's all I do. That's all I'm doing. I'm trying to persuade you. If you're unsaved here, I try to persuade you to get saved. If you are saved, I try to persuade you to see there's the judgment seat of Christ coming. I try to appeal to your conscience. Or can you sit there and you, and you know today? He says, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. You can have a smile on your face. You can pretend like you're happy that you're all taking this in. And the bottom line is simply this. Right now, what I've said, take me out of it. What I've said from the Word of God has made manifest with your conscience. You know you're either in or you're out. There's no middle ground this morning. There's no pretending inside. The pretending's on the outside. That's why this body has to be dissolved. And the one that goes before the Lord is the real one. You ain't getting it. My whole life, your whole life, 
24-7 is to persuade men to get saved. And then people who are saved to persuade them to realize that there's a day coming. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifested unto God. He says, I'm just preaching what God told you, told me to preach. And I trust also that what I'm preaching, not only is it God manifesting with me to preach it, but God's Spirit is manifesting in your conscience that you're either right with God this morning or you're not. Verse 17, oh, great verse. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. That's a great verse. And because that, all things are of God. Watch this. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Ah, here it comes. And hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, I'm not preaching today because I'm mad at you. I'm not preaching today because I think I'm better than you. I pray I'm probably worse than you. I'm not preaching up today because I'm some hunchback, three-headed monster up here that just likes to get up and get everybody's face, though I do enjoy that. (laughs) I'm persuading you to reconcile yourself to God. If you're an unsaved person, you need to reconcile by getting saved. It's just that simple. If you're an unsaved or saved person, then you need to reconcile to God and get the attitude right. Get whatever you got to do. Change whatever you got to do. Get whatever problem you have with whoever it may be taken care of. And I'm telling you, brother, you better listen to me. There's some things that you and I better reconcile with God and with each other before he gets here. Because the ministry from this verse in 18, I'll read it again. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. That's a process. And hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry is simply two things. First of all, the ministry of persuading men and women. And second of all, once we persuade them, we persuade them to be reconciled back to God. And then we reconcile each other through the process. And that's the concept. There's going to be a day when you're going to stand. I can't think of anything more shameful in anything in any context of the Bible. For a child of God who's saved, stand before that judgment seat of Christ. And God, take everything from him. And for the next 1,000 years, you walk up through the millennium, stark naked, where everybody looks at you and you bear the shame of the one. You see, here's the problem. And this is why you don't like this. And I'm telling you now, because some of you don't. One of the things old Shabbat taught me early on in preaching was watch people's faces when you preach. It'll tell you where to go and what to say. It'll tell you what not to say. It'll tell you when you need to back up and say what you thought you shouldn't have said. I know why you don't like it. You don't have the reality of it. You think that's a, you think that's a terrible thing for God to do. Some of you are back there sitting, well, I just don't think God could do that. Oh, no, no, no. God would let his son hang on the cross, agonize on the cross, be ripped naked on the cross, and go through all that he would for you. But he wants, you want to get there in a, you want to get there in a, in a, in a Lincoln Continental. You want to live your wife the way you want to while somebody else out there in Africa or someplace in the world is burning their life out or even here in this country burning their life out for God with the right attitude and you want to get there. You see, that's the problem. We don't have a reality. That's what a pastor ought to do every Sunday and every time he gets in a pulpit. Turn from whatever channel you're watching to the reality channel. 
and bring a good dose right to you. Because in this world, we go out of here, by the time you leave here, turn on the radio, watch TV this afternoon, visit with your friends, call them and, 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 and do all the things that you do. The reality will start to suck right out of your life. And you go right back where you were. The reality is this. This is why you don't like it, because you don't know that the only thing that you can get the right attitude about the judgment seat of Christ and see this thing for what it is, is building on that foundation, gold, silver, and precious stones. Getting to understand what he did for you in its entirety. When you understand that, you'll have no problem with what I'm preaching this morning. You'll have absolutely no problem with you or somebody standing there, me, standing there naked before the 1,000 years because we refused to give it up down here. Let me close with this. And I use this many, many times, so it's old to show me, but it makes the point. Let's say that I come up to you right after here and I've said, hey, look, <clears throat> I'm going to jam. I don't have an ATM card. The banks are all closed. And I got I, I, I to gotta have $20. I just got to have $20. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but I just, I just want a big sweepstakes and I got $100,000 in the bank. Uh, but I can't get to the bank. And I got to have $20. And I don't have a dime. I'll tell you what I do. I am so desperate for you to give me $20 that if you give me $20 now, tomorrow morning, you come to my house, we'll go to the bank, and I'll give you $1,000 back. Just to show you that I really need this and you're trusting me and giving me this, I'm going to give it back and I'm going to reward you for that. Now, who wouldn't do that? I mean, if you knew the person. If somebody comes up to your porch at 2 o'clock in the morning, don't do it. But, but, but you know the person. And sure enough, tomorrow morning you get there, you drive to the bank, and he writes you out a check for $1,000. gets out of the bank, you got $1,000. Wow, $20 for $1,000. Who, who, who can't grasp that concept? Okay, here it comes. God wants 20 years of your life. Maybe 30. But probably no more than 20. By the time we get done fooling around and do all the stupid things we do, we probably only got 20 years left to give him. But if you give him that 20 years over there, he'll give you $1,000 back. For a thousand-year reign, you'll reign with him. If you want to live like a servant down here, if you want to bear the reproach down here, you'll live like a king over there. If you want to live like a king down here, then you'll live like a, a shameful servant over there. It's just simple. I mean, what, what, what's so hard about that? You've already seen the passage that says somebody's going to be naked. You've already seen the passage that says that we are to bear his reproach without the camp. That we are, it's more than just believing on him. We've been called more than just believe on him. We've also been called to bear his shame. And what are you going to do with that? Now, next week, I'm going to close out this series. And I'm going to show you in the Bible, at the judgment seat of Christ, there are six questions you're going to have to answer. He's going to ask you six basic questions. Next week would be a good time to get sick. You might as well stay home and be sick as to come here and not do what's right and be sick. Next week will put us all on our knees. Next week is going to violate and invade every secret part of your life and everything you got. I'm telling you right now so you don't have to come because I'm just telling you. Why should you make your life so miserable? Why should you just put up with this? I'm telling you right now. It will search down into every crevice of your life and it will ferret out everything and none of us, none of us, none of us. It ain't like, well, I'm going to preach to you. None of us will be left standing when we're done. It'll be a throwback message before we get to the throwback month. But I'm guaranteeing right now, it's the only way to end this thing. I'm giving you every answer. I'm giving you every Bible verse. I'm giving you everything you know. Now I'm going to give you the te- answers to the questions and the answers on the test. And yet with all of that, with all of that, 
we still won't do what's right. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you.